that was the point of my question is that like, hate to say it, but the World of Cycling organization is just a, a free for all. There's no organization. There's no alliances. There's no loyalties. And that just has to change. Yeah. Well, you know, when you don't know anything about cycling, you think it's an individual sport. And then when you, you start to learn a little bit about it, you realize it's a team sport. The reason I say that is because it's the team sports which where the athletes have been able to get organized. And we're now seeing some really strong efforts to try and, I don't know, cycling can be both, to organize the individual sports, you know, uh, at the Olympic level. But we've yet to really see that breakthrough. So cycling, cycling in many ways is that sort of juxtaposition of these two areas. And there's a big desire for track and field, for example, is trying to get organized. It's never been able to. So cycling's a very, we're very interested in it, but you know, you, you're going to need to, and if you find some good leaders and people who are interested in wanting to do that job, then what we can do is we can get them to talk to people that have actually done this before, how you communicate with athletes, how you get them motivated, how you get them to have trust and confidence in what you're trying to achieve, how you resource your organization so that it's independent. We can share that type of information with them. What role does sport play in a pandemic? And more importantly, what role will it play in a post-pandemic world? We ask the head of the World Players Association, Brendan Schwab, these questions and more this week on Put Your Socks On. G'day, g'day, and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On, the podcast that's been social distancing since 2019. My name is Angus Morton, and as I was last week and every week before that, I am joined by Bobby Julik. Mate, how are you doing? I'm doing well, adjusting to this new normal, I guess. Sadly, my beautiful Pinarello gravel bike is gathering dust. Been doing a little Zwift rides. I did one with Jens Vogt the other day. During the, the Digital World Bike Conference, I did another one with Philippe Gilbert, which was uh, actually like a workout that mimicked the Tour of Flanders. That was a shocker to the system. Whoa. Um, <laughs> for, for a guy that doesn't know those roads very well, it was- You did the uh, whole thing? No, they, they did like basically the last hour. But okay. what was quite interesting was it must have been a sports scientist that basically looked at the actual file of- you know, SRM file or what of one of the riders and just kind of mimicked the, the last couple bergs and then the finishing part of, um, tour of Flanders. So that was pretty cool. And just this morning, prior to recording this podcast, I did a ride with Israel startup nation to raise funds, to secure, uh, some more N95 masks for hospitals in New York. There's a lot of people riding indoors these days. There's a lot of people riding in on Zwift. That's for sure. When, when I first started using Zwift, the Zwift platform back in 2015, there were very few course options and quite common to see less than 600 people on Watopia Island at one time. Recently, I've seen as many as 20,000, and that's just on Watopia. And now they have multiple worlds, so you can switch around the worlds if you don't want to ride on Watopia. I don't think that Zwift or the entire internet, for that matter, was totally ready or able to deal with so many people being online at the same time. There have definitely been some some glitchy issues, no no doubt. But let's just pray that we don't break the internet. 
I mean, that would be total chaos if it went down even for a day. But perhaps I've been in the Zwift bubble. I constantly refer to online or inside writing as Zwift. But I wasn't aware just how many other platforms are out there. There's RGT, there's CV Arcade, Trainer Road, Sufferfest, Be Cool, just to name a few. Uh, Ruby is another one. But I've been on Zwifty since the early days and may have to start checking out a couple of these other platforms too, because today Greg Van Evermet won a virtual tour of Flanders on the Be Cool platform. And Stuart O'Grady had an event on RGT or Road Grand Tours. So there's there's a lot going on. But um, yeah, man, I, I, I had absolutely no idea uh, there was anything else but Zwift out there. So that's, yeah, interesting. I guess I probably should check out a few of these options myself. I, I, I must admit, I find it pretty hard work getting on the, uh, the home trainer. <laughs> I can imagine. And on top of that, after many years of hearing about Peloton from George Hincapie, who was a, an instructor at Peloton, and Christian Wait, Vandev- <laughs> Wait a second. Yeah. George Hincapie Vandev- was it a... George Hincapie and Christian Vanderveld did spin classes? Peloton workout classes, yeah. So No um, way. And, Dude, and, I'm going to have to message Christian as soon as I get off of this. Oh, he's super popular too. And Dude, he's quite... I, mean, I and guess it, that makes sense. And, and he's still very active. So I was able to recently do a trade with a friend to procure one. Not for me, but for my oldest daughter and, and my wife. And let me tell you, man, these things are heavy. <laughs> putting it on the back of a truck, getting it home, up a few flights of stairs and setting it up for them was an experience, put it that way. I realized that I need to get into the gym a little bit more for <laughs> sure. But uh, yeah, so far my wife and oldest daughter are using it daily. I'm thinking of hopping on more to click on George and Christian's workouts and just see what uh, those knuckleheads are doing on there. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it's just a matter of time. You got Christian is on there. You got Matt Wilpers on there. Jennifer Jacobs, who is um, uh, you know quite a popular instructor to say the very least. But there's tons of awesome instructors. And this is the first time I've actually turned on a Peloton and seen what it's all about. And it's, it's pretty, pretty high tech. The one negative part of that, or maybe positive, is I won't say exactly, but I think that my 17-year-old daughter has already has a crush on one of the um, <laughs> British instructors. I, I won't say who, um, but yeah. Been, I hope she doesn't uh, listen to this podcast. She's going to kill you. Yeah, you know, kids don't listen to podcasts, you know, yeah, at least true. their dad's podcast. Exactly. But hey, backing up a little bit, one thing mm-hmm. I totally get but perhaps our listeners need a little bit more clarification on is during the intro, you say the podcast that's been practicing social distancing from April, 2019. All of our listeners out there probably want to know what that means. Well, this podcast began in April, 2019 at the Tour of California, uh, when that was still a race and when people could still race. We began that podcast whilst I was in exile after I'd had my visa revoked from the US. So I was actually in Australia. Um, You're obviously in in the US. And so we had to conduct the first podcasts and almost every single podcast bar one since then over the internet, over, you know, over over video uh, conferencing. Um, We should note that that we're now, even though we're all in the US, we're on three different time zones. Um, We're on uh, Eastern, Mountain and uh, Pacific. Our producer, Eddie... (laughs) 
who's been with us the whole way is out in uh, on the West Coast. And then we interview people typically uh, who are over in Europe. So we're often on four different time zones making this show and we've been doing that since April 2019. So when everyone's uh, talking about how they're adjusting to you know, life via video conferencing, you know, people are telling you about how they forgot that they were on a video call and they were wearing their pajamas or something like that. That we, We've made all those mistakes and we are real pros at it now. So yeah, we've been practicing, uh, you know, our version of podcast social distancing since April 2019. So yeah, just to clarify that. There you go. There it is. <laughs> Before we get on the show, let's hear from our sponsors. Roll Massif's collection of eight road gravel and mountain bike sportives in Colorado take riders on a journey through the most stunning landscapes in the U.S. Each sportif offers a range of distances and challenges to suit all abilities. Iconic courses wind through the alpine terrain at the Copper Triangle Sportif and desert landscapes through the Colorado National Monument during the Tour of the Moon. Each event delivers an incredible day out on the bike with world-class support and a post-ride festival. And to help get kids out on their bikes, anyone under 18 rides for free at the road and gravel events. You can check them out at rollmassif.com. That is R-O-L-L-M-A-S-S-I-F.com. And listeners of the Fizzo podcast get 15% off any sportive using the code Fizzo15. That's P-Y-S-O-15 at checkout, which expires May 1st. As the spread of COVID-19 continues and the extent of the shutdown ever expanding, the end of the crisis is becoming less and less clear. As a result, we have been starting to think about what the sport of cycling will look like post-crisis and if there is an opportunity for the sport and its role within society to evolve for the better. What will Cycling 2.0 look like? Today's guest is an incredibly well-esteemed expert, advocate, and trailblazer in sports ethics, athletes' rights, and representation in sport. The head of the World Players Association, Mr. Brendan Schwab. G'day, Brendan. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Gus. Welcome to the show. I really appreciate you jumping on on this weekend. I mean, mind you, who knows what a weekend really is at the current in the current situation, but uh, yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, would you mind just you know telling us a little bit about what the World Players Association does for athletes and for sport around the world, just sort of generally? Yeah, sure. Look, we're a relatively new organization. We were set up formally at the end of 2014 and we bring together some 120 player associations in more than 60 countries across primarily the major professional team sports, including football, the major sports in North America from the NFL to Major League Baseball, all the way through um, Asia and and, and Australasia. Uh, the decision to establish our organization really gathered momentum probably in the earlier part of the of the 2010s when the player associations were becoming increasingly frustrated that too many decisions at the global multi-sport level were being made in which the players and the athletes simply did not have a seat at the table and those decisions really fall into three main categories the role of the international olympic committee as the supreme governing body of world sport uh, making binding decisions through the olympic charter uh, ongoing decisions of the court of arbitration for sport and also the world anti-doping agency making decisions which really had 
significant impacts on players, but in which we weren't at the table. And, and, and so the decision was made that just as we've done at the national level, we need to get organized so that these decisions can start to be made in partnership with the players and we start to better uh, deliver better not only outcomes in terms of the rights and the well-being of athletes but also better outcomes for sport inside that what what does your role look like like who are you are you is it you know are you sitting down at the table with the IOC with these the uh, WADA and things like that or your kind of role specifically look like? Well, we've, we've come together really with two main objectives. The first is to exchange best practice when it comes to athlete organization rights and representation. And it's an incredibly complex field. I like to say to our staff that, look, our job gets harder every day, which means that if we're not learning and we're not developing, then we're less effective when we go home than we are when we arrive at work. And if you just look at our movement, our movement really grew from the 1960s, starting pretty much with Major League Baseball and English soccer. And then it was about fundamental economic freedoms, uh, the right to get paid, the right to move free agency. And these, of course, for many players are still live issues. But now we're dealing with very complex issues such as head injury, concussions, uh, mental health, social well-being, athlete identity, what, uh, how athletes transition into becoming successful people, how they excel as people and not just athletes through their involvement in sport. And so the, the work of our organizations has become very involved and, and it's very important that we share information around that. The second thing, of course, is to advance those matters of common interest. There are two main tables we seek to sit down at at the global level. The first is with the United Nations and its agencies to make sure that the international standards that the UN, and that includes the UN Human Rights Commission, it includes the International Labor Organization, UNESCO, the World Health Organization, to make sure that these organizations are well aware of the, uh, of the role of the athletes. And, and, and the second, of course, is the major sports bodies. And that's really um, the way in which uh, our work uh, is carried on on a day-to-day basis. You said something really interesting there, which is like, you know, I don't think a lot of people um certainly the general public when they think about sport necessarily think about athletes as like human beings and being i guess like role models but to the degree of like sitting down you know what what role does sport play in society and speaking with people like the un and those very you know those kind of gigantic organizations that yeah you don't necessarily see linking to sport and a lot of those conversations a lot of the things that you just spoke about we've had conversations about on this show before things like athletes transitioning and what role does the athlete play when talking about issues like climate change and things like that and we did want to initially kind of speak pretty specifically about um, cycling with you and and setting ethical standards within sport and those sort of things however you know the COVID-19 situation has blown up in in you know recent sort of weeks and months as we've been trying to you know get you on the phone all this sort of stuff's been playing out and I wanted to know well you just sent through um, the World Players Association has just released a COVID-19 guiding principles um, and there was something that you were quoted in the material that you sent through which I found really interesting and and to quote you it says sport is a great connector of people and must continue to play a leadership role in helping society overcome COVID-19 by promoting the best health messages and practices including those of the World, uh, World Health Organization. I just do you mind elaborating on the role of sport in the world right now and how athletes are I guess you know should be exercising their role 
while still adhering to the current WHO health guidelines and the like? Well, well, certainly at the global level, um, sport over the last decade, uh, even perhaps going further back, risked losing its its social licence. And really a tipping point was reached when the World Cup was corruptly, I think we can safely say, awarded to Qatar in 2010. There's certainly been very serious disciplinary action taken against many, if not most, of the people that made that decision. And then that resulted in a human human rights crisis with the abuse of migrant workers in the construction of stadia and other infrastructure in and around Qatar, a $200 billion venture. So the social power and the geopolitical power of sport was well understood, yet it was done on terms where sport, which was meant to be a force for good, one of the great sporting events, the FIFA World Cup, rather than being associated with positive social messages, was actually causing or at least contributing to significant human rights violations. And I think that galvanised the sports community. And when we look at the sports community, what do we mean? It's not just the sports bodies and the athletes. There are so many people that are involved in the delivery of sport and who are affected by it. The local communities in, in the, where these events are held, the fans, the media, the, 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 the journalists, the brands, the broadcasters, the sponsors, the governments, of course, and of course, the intergovernmental agencies such as the UN. And so there was a very strong commitment reached then by FIFA that it needed to change and had to embed human rights into its activities. And we've seen you know, some very significant reforms since then. And the International Olympic Committee is now recently um, made commitments to also embed human rights into everything that it does. And why is this important? Because it's one thing to say that sport should be a force for good. It's very hard for sport to do that if it's not holding itself to the same humanitarian standards that it's espousing. And so we think that it's very important and civil society and the player union movement and the players themselves have a very important role to make sure that we're true within our industry to the values that we promote before we seek to impose them on or promote them throughout broader society. In relation to COVID-19, I would say that that's probably the most complex issue that you know, I've certainly had to have been involved with, which I think our industry has been involved with probably since the Second World War. And just to give you an example of how problematic it can be when we get it wrong, is that athletes in the short term were being told that, look, this is a mild illness if you're young and you're fit. Um, you will suffer mild flu-like symptoms. And we had a situation where players were being pressured to continue to play and train including behind closed doors so that the economic imperatives could be addressed. And it soon emerged and Dr. Tedros, the Director General of the World Health Organization, had to issue very strong statements saying, young people are, are vulnerable to this virus. It can make you very, very sick. It can kill you. But even if you're asymptomatic, you can still transmit the virus to people who are more vulnerable. And I think that's a very important example of how sport cannot continue to operate in a vacuum when we're confronting a public health crisis. And sometimes the standards that it upholds itself, which involves an enormous sacrifice, are critical because the public health and the humanitarian message has to come first. How have the WA been specifically helping sports? 
navigate that current situation? I guess you've probably had a lot of, of sports coming to you maybe and a lot of players, I guess, like working out, you know, everything's shut down. Like how do we move forward? Well, there's been just so much that, that people have had to get their head around in, in such a hurry. And we're certainly not the the font of all wisdom. But what we can do is we can curate great knowledge because our organizations that are affiliated to us um, are are so sophisticated. So, for example, if we look at the National Basketball Players Association, the NBA was closed down within hours of a positive test, yet we've had other sports trying to play through the, 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 the pandemic. The, the power of bringing these organizations together to share information uh, is really, you know, significant um, and, and beneficial. And I think that in this instance, we've, we've certainly encouraged that. And, and the eight guiding principles that we've put together, we believe, comes from the best practice that we've seen by our affiliates on the ground, handling really difficult negotiations. How do we balance the short-term economic imperative with player and public health? What's going to be the term of this shutdown? How do we negotiate the return to work? And what about the long-term sustainability of our industry? These are all issues that we need to work through. At the same time, we had to deal at the global level, making sure that we could get some good information from the World Health Organization. And of course, we had the challenge of the mega sporting events. Uh, particularly the global ones, such as the International Olympic Committee, for a long time saying, look, the Games can go ahead in Tokyo in July. And we had to speak to the athletes and others to really get a strong view from that group that that was an unsustainable position, not just because athletes couldn't prepare properly for the Games, but the athletes made it clear to us that holding an event of that scale at this point in time is just not in the interests of public health and could well exacerbate efforts to um, control the pandemic. And the athletes themselves, as I understand it, and I'm not an expert on on this, is that this virus can cause permanent lung damage. And to a person that doesn't use 100% of their lung capacity, that may not really affect their quality of life that much. But to these athletes, where 1% is the difference between first and 10th in so many of these events, is that actually taken into account with, you know, the future planning and the comeback and reintegration of, of sport back into it? Because our daily lives are definitely changed forever. But with with the athletes and this potential permanent damage, even if they do come out of this, it definitely is something that that I'm thinking about. I mean, I'm not a professional athlete anymore, but if I was a professional athlete, I'd want to make sure that I wasn't at risk. What can be done here? Um, how can we start to even think about reintegrating sport into society when there's so many unanswered questions? Well, I, I think that you've made a couple of points there. I think the first one is, is, is critical, though. What is the information that we're getting? Remember, a lot of people don't know, including the experts, what is the real impact of, of, of COVID-19 on people because it, it's a virus that only emerged late last year. And so it's all, it's all new and there, there, there's certainly no testing available as to what are the long-term performance consequences and effects of the virus on athletes because that just simply hasn't happened yet. 
so what we need to do in, 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 in such an intense situation like this is to try and get the best information possible. And that's not always straightforward. You know, it took very courageous whistleblowers in China, even in Wuhan, the doctors that raised the alarm around the virus were severely disciplined in their own country and and one of them passed away and they're now regarded as heroes. And so trying to get this information out when so many people have a vested interest in certain outcomes, we need industry to continue. We need to continue to promote the economy. Where does public health... So from an athlete's point of view, our view is that you need to be incredibly well-organized so that you can influence the decisions that are made around you. And you need to access to your own information, which is preferably the best available and the latest available information so that you can challenge what is put to you by those in power. And certainly for a long time, the athletes in connection with the Olympic Games were told that, look, it's mild flu-like symptoms, you'll be okay. And of course, we think that information was wrong and misleading and, and, and highly dangerous. To that point about the Olympic Games and, and the messaging they were sending when they were trying to continue on, have you experienced, uh, and you made that point about the whistleblowers, right, coming out of China, like have you, ha, have, has the sporting world, have you experienced like a lot of pushback from big organizations like in a, I guess in a negligent way maybe or like in a, in a way that like is explicitly like putting profits and, and things first or has this conversation you know at least relatively open in lines in terms of communication uh, i think it's difficult to be critical of anybody because and you don't want to question uh, the motives of, of people but uh, as an athlete union movement it's it's very very important that people have access to their own position they're they're able to form their own view just as a matter of due diligence and a matter of professionalism, it, it doesn't necessarily involve questioning the integrity of, of those. But at the same time, there are very huge interests at stake which are affected by this. You know, the decision to postpone the Olympic Games is a very, very significant decision. The decision to shut down Major League Baseball indefinitely, the NBA indefinitely. These are very significant decisions and there's a very significant sporting and, and, and economic impact. So we need to be aware of that. In the main, the feedback we got from the players was that if it was safe for them to play, then their natural point was uh, they would like they would like to do so. But we, we were worried about that strategy because it was really only subject to two things. One was a player testing positive so as soon as a player tested positive, pretty much we were into an immediate shutdown situation in any league. And the second was the changing situation in terms of government regulation. And there was a dramatic escalation in the severity of government regulation from probably late February to the third week of March. And, and in that time, the sports were acting on the advice of the governments, but we don't think that that advice was necessarily to pick up Bobby's point tailored to the particular needs of athletes and, and the particular risks they were at. And also as generally young and healthy people, it was sending a pretty dangerous message out there to other young and healthy people who aren't athletes that, hey, you'll be okay. You can go out, you can socialize, you can go to the pubs, you can go to the restaurants, you can go to the beaches. And as we've seen, that's certainly contributed to the spread of the virus. I don't know how much information or experience you have with the world of cycling, but to drag 
the conversation a little bit more back to that. We're in a situation in our sport where we don't quite have that union, that players union, that representation. Right now, it seems to be run by our governing body, the UCI, and a main player promoter, the the ASO. So I've recently come across this quote from a trusted colleague, and I would like your opinion on it. Because like to me, this looks like a perfect opportunity to restructure our sport, to kind of come out of this in a much more positive way than, than we were, than we're currently in it. So here it is. And I just want to have your opinion on it because it's, it's quite powerful. This gentleman wrote to me, I noticed that the UCI says worlds are still on a pre-planned time. Now is the time the pro teams need to come together and tell the ASO and the UCI that these are the races that we want to run when things open. We will decide a couple monuments and one grand tour, but we will decide not you. That's how power control can be extracted from the ASO and UCI. The teams are the ones who can tell them based on training availability what can and cannot be done, not them. Now is the time to take control here. That said, what can the sport of cycling perhaps do during this special period in history to come out the other end more solidified and organized than ever? What do you think about that? Well, you know, the teams have certain rights and then, and then the, the promoter and, and, and the governing body. And I think we always have to be careful about, you know, a territorial uh, approach. You know, the, the ultimate for the players is to develop into a highly effective organisation where they can have an equal say in the critical decisions that affect them and their industry and that ultimately the industry is, is run in partnership. And I do think that there are many interests. So, you know, what, what you're talking about reminds me a little bit of, say, European soccer, where, where the leagues and the owners of the clubs often assert uh, very strong interests. And, and those interests are not necessarily representative of the overall best interests of, of, of the sport. Um, I, I think that where the players and the athletes and the cyclists in this case are well organized. I've never really met an, an athlete who doesn't really care about their sport you know, that in many ways it's, it's that commitment and that passion to sport, which, which engendered for them the love and the commitment that's necessary to become an elite performer. And so I do think when they're brought together as a collective, they do have a very sensible informed and responsible attitude to the way in which the sport would go. I think that if you've got teams and the international federation and the promoters and the cyclists all going in different directions, then it's going to be very, very difficult to negotiate an outcome, particularly to the crisis situations that that, that sport is now confronting. Yeah, I really feel that this is an opportunity for these these different bodies to come together and actually get get organized because you know, you're you're talking about the NBA, the NFL, you know, these big organizations and we're lagging behind, but perhaps this will be an opportunity to have all the players come together and actually restructure things moving forward. I was just going to say like on like to to Bobby's point, coming out of this situation, is there the opportunity 
or not even the opportunity, but do you see sport taking on a different role in society, continuing on that evolution? And what sort of role do you think that sport and, and our sporting heroes taking on post-pandemic? Well, I, I do think that sport was confronting a pretty significant change before the before the pandemic. A, a lot of the business models that were maturing in terms of the broadcast model, the sponsorship model, they were starting to be tested due to changing consumer behaviours and also changing you know, technological footprints. So I do think in many ways sport was confronting uh, a, a difficult time. And what the pandemic has done is it's, it, it's greatly reduced in many ways the amount of time that sport has to deal with these profound changes that were occurring. If we look at the Olympic Games, for example, Tokyo was going to be a very significant Olympiad for a whole series of athlete rights issues, be it political expression, commercial rights, economic rights, heat, athlete safety. There was a whole series of issues which were building, which the IOC was going to have to deliver on. And, and each sport has its own challenges in these respects. So what the pandemic does is it, it means that the time for thinking, the time for working through these issues is, is greatly reduced. Um, so those sports that have more mature governance models, more mature engagement with the stakeholders, they should be able to move more quickly in terms of negotiating what will emerge. But I do think the social and the cultural role will be very important. I'm optimistic that sport will um, be a trigger for rebuilding communities and reuniting people once uh, the restrictions have been lifted but it needs to be in an economic and a social position in order to do so. And if, for example, some sports self-implode over short-term economic disputes and legal disputes, then I think they will struggle because um, they will also need the support of the government in order to come out of this. And therefore, if they're not playing a strong social role and they're not demonstrating civic leadership, then I think they will find themselves isolated and fragmented. I couldn't agree more. In, in my opinion, sport will always survive. It's, it's in our DNA. But we haven't effectively just pushed the pause button. It's not like when, when we do decide to get going again, it's not like we're going to just pick up where we left off, right? I'm intrigued to hear what the fallout of this situation will be in terms of getting started again. I've had a lot of athletes, a lot of people ask me like, how is this going to start? Are we going to do these events behind closed doors? Are we going to, I don't know, have an NBA game without fans? Are they going to be tested prior to every game or every practice? How, how do you see us starting over? Is, where do we start? How do we start? Like, to what level precautions have to be put in place to roll this out? I see it being a very kind of gradual thing, not just pushing the pause button and starting where we left off. But I'd be interested to hear where where you think we can viably start integrating sports and mass participation sports back into our daily lifestyle. Well, I, I think that the best examples that we're seeing are where the leagues, uh, the clubs, uh, the owners and the players with their unions are sitting down and they're negotiating uh, a series of scenarios. The first one is how do we stop the bleeding and preserve the economic uh, liquidity of our industry during the period of this shutdown. 
And of course, the big question, which is which none of us can answer at the moment, is how long is this shutdown going to be? I think it's look more now uh, several months, not just not just a, a couple of months. And then the scenario planning comes into play. How much time do we need to train again in order to get to to, to match fitness? How many events can we put on? What window is available to us to complete our existing offerings to the broadcasters and so on? And, and, and there's acute health and safety issues associated with that, which we're still getting our head around. You know, they're talking about, for example, certifying immunity so that people who have contracted the virus can be given a certificate so that they can safely go back and start working. What access to testing should athletes have? Like some of our unions are concerned that if we've got a public health crisis and the hospital system is under pressure, what message does it send that athletes are having access to testing day in, day out when there's a shortage in the broader community? So all of these issues still need to be worked through. But what I would say in terms of our dealings with our unions is that they've all looked at everything, not just from the perspective of their own members and their own sport, but also very much from the from the public health perspective as well. Mate, this has been a really fantastic conversation and some really interesting points raised there and, and, and certainly some big considerations that we as athletes, we as fans all need to think about as we go forward. And I, I, to your point, I'm, I'm optimistic as well and I think that coming out of this, um, the sporting world can be in a better place and, and, and become a more you know, positive and influential role within greater society. Before you go, I, I, do have, I do have one question, which is a little bit off topic, but I've got to ask, what is the favorite sport of the head of the you know, World Players <laughs> Association? Are you, are, you allowed to, are you even allowed to have one? <laughs> well, I, I have a favorite team, although, and that's because I was born and bred in Australia, and that's a team called Richmond. In, so if I had to choose one team, I'm a big, but, but football is my sport, soccer, I'd have to say is my sport. I worked in that for, for 10 or 20 years. The way I got the opportunity to work in the world players and be part of the foundation of world players was I was very actively involved in an organization called FIFPRO, which is the World Footballers Association. And it was that which taught me the global perspective. And it's really that sport, which, you know, I just get amazed um, just how it can touch the whole world. And it really is a great demonstration of the, uh, of the power of sport. I would have to agree with you there. And uh, being, being a, uh, a Northern New South Wales boy, I'm a, I'm a, Swans, I'm a Swans fan, I've got to say. So <laughs> appreciate that, mate. Thank you so much for your time. Really can't, can't thank you enough for that. It's been a really enlightening conversation. No, it's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Bobby. Nice to chat. Bobby, that was a really interesting conversation. Um, we've been trying to get on with Brendan for a long time to, to talk about sort of some pretty isolated and specific inst- incidents um, within cycling surrounding Gianni Moscon um, and how our sport should respond to that. Cycling is, you know, in, in all, you know, out, out, like cycling in terms of um, how its athletes behave outside of the sport is pretty lucky. Um, you know, it's not like it doesn't have these huge problems that, that some other sports have, but this is definitely a conversation or was a conversation that needed to be had. Obviously, then COVID-19 happened and a, and a whole bunch of other things uh, as a result of that, have become far more um, prominent. And so jumping on with Brendan today, I was really intrigued to hear about um, what he thought the sport was going to be like. And so, yeah, to him, him talking about, I think, um, for me, the, re- the really interesting thing was how sport as a whole over the last 10 years is, is changing. And then more recently, um, how the different business models um, and the role of the athlete in sports has changed quite a bit. 
And uh, and then also too, I was intrigued to hear what he thought of of the what athletes could do during the shutdown to set good examples. What did you think of uh, of of that conversation? Well, first and foremost, it's very clear uh, that there's a lot smarter and well-educated <laughs> people involved in these things than than guys like you and me. But it was just Absolutely. a an, an honor to get him finally on our podcast, even though we did have to pivot a little bit from what we originally wanted to talk about. But yeah, athletes are people first, and mm. we have to remember that. And there's going to be a lot of changes. There's a lot of in- uncertainty on on what's going on right now. Um, I wish we would have had a little bit of time to dive down a little bit deeper into, you know, cycling specific stuff. But um, obviously, we, we took up enough of his time. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to ask him was, I believe that the role of women's sport, women's cycling, is not just giving them a same prize list as the men. It's promoting their sport. It's organizing the sport just the same way as the men's men events are being organized. So there, there was a lot to take from that conversation, and there's still a lot of questions. And you know, I'm sure we'll, we'll hopefully we'll have Brendan back on the on the podcast again in the future. Yeah, definitely. I think um, one thing that that he um, kind of highlighted and, and and said was that he was optimistic um, about what sport as a whole, but um, you know, all these sort of individual sports will look like as they come out of this crisis, and also the opportunity. Um, for them to perhaps iron out a few kinks or kind of you know polish a few things that they couldn't um, or there wasn't the opportunity to beforehand. Um, so I'm really excited for that. And I think as you said, once we do once we do start firing up, these are he, he highlighted some really important conversations that need to be had within cycling. Um, and that and to your point, right, organizing um, as athletes and the opportunity to for the athletes to come together, both men's women's um, as a whole and start to, you know, put their hand up and be like, hey, we're athletes too and, and we need to be heard. So I'm excited to to be a part of that conversation and um, and I'm hoping that, you know, the rest of the, the sporting world and the athletes are also going to jump in and, you know, really um, to his point when he was talking about the Olympic Games and, you know, how they how they work with the UN um, and these, these bigger organizations that have humanity um, at their hearts and I think sport has humanity at its heart but it's easy to forget that. And I'm hoping that, you know, our listeners are able to, to be reminded of that. And if they weren't, you know, already aware of it and, and if they weren't aware of it, then um, then they're now aware of it that, yeah, sport does have a big position. And um, and we all get to have a say in what that looks like. So looking forward yeah. to it. And and to me, that I think the listeners and when, when they actually um, get this out, to me, the most intriguing thing was his eight guiding principles for coming mm. out of the COVID-19 um, situation for, for sports industry and community. And, um, you know, sport can help the world overcome COVID-19. Share the best and most up-to-date information. Respect for human and labor rights. Care for people. Athlete engagement and social dialogue. Global and stakeholder governance. And the impact mitigation and recovery and planning of what's going to ha- have to happen for this for the sporting world to get back into society that was phenomenal stuff and hopefully mm. we can put a link in where people can read that 
um, in, in detail because, like I said, thank goodness there's a lot more intelligent people than myself that are already thinking about these things. And that's it. That's all we have time for this week. You can also get the show as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velanews.com. You can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify. So please continue to show your support by subscribing, liking, and telling your friends about our little venture we have going on here. Exactly right. You can also reach us on social media, Physopod on Twitter, P-Y-S-O-P-O-D, at that is Gus and at bobby.julik on Instagram. So reach out to us there, give us some feedback. Guys, until next week, thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, spread the love. Take care and uh, stay, stay indoors. Absolutely. Stay safe, stay healthy, and don't forget to put your socks on. 